Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today my guest is Awad Alabi. Awad published with University of Texas Press, Palestinian Rituals of Identity, the Prophet Moses Festival in Jerusalem, 1850 to 1948. And the book was released in late 2022. Members of Palestine Muslim community have long honored Al-Nabi Musa, or the Prophet Moses. Since the 13th century, they have celebrated at a shrine near Jericho, believed to be the location of Moses' tomb. In the mid-19th century, they organized a civic festival in Jerusalem to honor this prophet. Considered one of the most important occasions for Muslim pilgrims in Palestine, the Prophet Moses Festival yearly attracted thousands of people who assembled to pray, conduct mystical forms of worship, and hold folk celebration. The book by Alabi, Palestinian Rituals of Identity, takes an innovative approach to the study of Palestine modern history by focusing on the Prophet Moses Festival from the late Ottoman period through the era of British rule, and essentially to its end. Halabi explores how the festival served as an arena of competing discourses with various social groups attempting to control its symbols, tackling questions about modernity, colonialism, gender relations and identity. Halabi recounts how peasants, Bedouins, rural women and Sufis sought to influence the festival, even as Ottoman authorities, British colonialists, Muslim clerists and Palestinian national leaders did the same. This book draws on an extensive research in Arabic newspaper in Islamic colonial archives. And the author reveals how the festival has encapsulated Palestinians' response to modernity, colonialism, and the nation-growing national identity. But before we delve into all of this, first things first, Awad, welcome. Thank you very much, Roberto. A great honor to be here. Now, the first question I want to ask is, uh, if you can tell us something about yourself, your background, and more importantly, about the origins of the book. 
Well, thank you. Um, well, uh, I was born in Jerusalem and uh, immigrated to Canada when I was uh, young. And regarding the origins of the book, I was um, had always been interested in history and increasingly interested in cultural and social history and <clears throat> um, was trying to always uh, get a grounding in, in those approaches. And, and I searched out for um, works on those topics. And then um, one day in a graduate seminar at the University of Toronto, I mentioned, um, I mentioned the Nebi Musa festival in one of our discussions. And my advisor, uh, James Riley, suggested, you know, learn, what can you learn more about it? And would this be a potential topic? And at the time, I really didn't know what was available. And I didn't really have a sense of how much, uh, you know, what sources were there. And <clears throat> um, luckily, uh, uh, it's, a, you know, it's a festival that dates back to the 13th century. And so the sources stretch from the 13th century in various um, uh, 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 various types of sources, Ottoman, uh, Islamic religious, and of course then British and um, uh, British colonial and Arabic newspapers. But um, I developed that uh, interest in it and um, I was just interested in seeing how this festival could tell us what it could tell us about the larger history of Palestine, because it has such a long history from the 13th century onwards. And um, it was just something that I thought would be an interesting addition to how to understand Palestine differently than in the way of the um, um, of a political history, for example. The book is called Palestinian Rituals of Identity. So essentially it's about mostly Islamic rituals, including the Nebi Musa pilgrimage. So can we start talking about these rituals and how these are related to the creation of a Nebi Musa festival and pilgrimage? Right. <clears throat> so... Um... This festival should be put into the larger context of what is referred to as Ziyarat al-Kabur, um, uh, ritual pilgrimages uh, to tombs. And there's a long uh, uh, religious tradition <clears throat> uh, in Islam of pilgrims visiting sacred sites, uh, holy shrines, uh, tombs of revered biblical figures or prophets, or historical figures even. And uh, when they go there, they seek Baraka. And the shrine is uh, a sacred site that emits Baraka, blessings. And <clears throat> pilgrims will go and petition for um, uh, their, uh, their own health, the health of a child, um, for a successful harvest that year and so it is uh, a medium uh, to relate to the divine um, it's an intermediary uh, in a way 
And so <clears throat> the practice of Ziyara, ritual pilgrimages to tombs and sacred sites, um, is prominent throughout uh, the Islamic world and in, in Muslim societies from the uh, earliest periods, but especially in Palestine and the larger Arab East, it expands in importance and um, increases in number of shrines after the Crusader period, because after the Crusader period, there's now a greater contest over the um, ownership, the claim to the sacred land, to the holy land, and to seeking greater religious justifications uh, for uh, for the area to serve to be a, a an Islamic territory, and this is when you begin to see an increasing number of shrines dedicated to um, biblical figures, um, uh, Quranic figures, and they in a way serve as the landmarks claiming um, this land as holy, sacred, and Islamic. And this is when um, <clears throat> we really see uh, uh, the, the shrine of the Prophet Moses have uh, attract greater attention. There was um, already debate within the Islamic community of <clears throat> where the site of Moses' tomb is. And in the Judaic biblical tradition, no one knows his final resting place. Um, but in uh, the Islamic tradition, there was debate, some saying we don't know, some saying that uh, attributing it to various places, south of Syria, east of the Jordan River, and the shrine near Jericho, which is about 12 kilometers southwest of Jericho, about 30 kilometers southeast of Jerusalem, was one of uh, almost a half dozen shrines or sites attributed to the tomb of Moses. These are mentioned in chronicles, in Hadith literature, in religious literature, <clears throat> and um, the Mamluk Sultan Baibars in the year 1269 was passing through um, uh, Palestine and Syria and heard about the popular veneration to a site attributed to the tomb of the prophet Moses. And so he dedicates um, funds and waqf property, religiously endowed property, to support uh, a dome to be built over the tomb and, um, <clears throat> and uh, an adjoining mosque. And it was, of course, a very humble shrine because it's in the middle of the desert. It's only about uh, the about thirty uh, square meters uh, for the the uh, tomb uh, for the shrine for the tomb. And so <clears throat> uh, he endows it. And once he endows it and it becomes associated with an annual festival, uh, that's when it becomes more popular and it attracts greater attention. Uh, because it's attracted this patronage of such an esteemed uh, figure. These 
uh, shrines usually have a festival known as a maulid. Maulid uh, uh, honors the anniversary of a death of a prophet or a religious figure or the one who's entombed, or uh, a mausum, uh, a festival season where pilgrims will go and have a larger celebration once a year. And um, the shrine of the prophet Moses um, was known as a maqam, had this annual celebration in uh, early spring, and it becomes more um, fixed in the late Ottoman period. Since you mentioned uh, the origins of a Nabi Musa festival and pilgrimage, I just want to ask you something more about uh, the reasons why the festivals and the pilgrimage were established. I mean, there are a number of historians that argued that essentially the Nabi Musa festival and pilgrimage were established in some sort of a competition with Jewish and Christian uh, celebrations. Uh, Also, the very fact that the Nabi Musa festival uh, takes place uh, more or less at the same period as the uh, Christian Easter and the Jewish Passover, obviously, uh, you know, made a lot of historians thinking about uh, this as a possibility for the emergence of this uh, festival and pilgrimage. So before we talk about uh, sources and methodology, I I really wanted to unpack uh, this particular issue of the origins of the festival and to what extent there may be a degree of truth in this theory. Yes, excellent uh, question. There is this reputation it has, particularly when it's written more about in the 19th century as um, a competition to assert an Islamic identity in, in competition with uh, Christians and, and, and Jews. <clears throat> and it is um, even interpreted as having hostile in- intentions because it is, um, in the modern era, it is fixed to the Orthodox, uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, uh, Easter calendar. But throughout its history, from its founding in the 13th century until the mid-19th century, the festival uh, celebrations are linked with either generally what uh, one 16th century historian refers to as the rainy period, so late spring, which conforms to around uh, 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 Easter time. And there there are even some indications uh, from uh, 16th, 17th century sources that people visited in conformity with the dates of the Orthodox Easter calendar. That, however, I don't interpret as being deliberately um, uh, or intentionally intended to conflict with uh, the Christian and Jewish uh, uh, springtime religious celebrations. Because uh, the pilgrims left Jerusalem and went to the shrine. Unlike the arrival of the thousands of pilgrims to Jerusalem doesn't begin until the mid-19th century. So the uh, pilgrims from Jerusalem, from the southern parts of Palestine, uh, from the eastern hilly regions of Palestine, 
went and performed this pilgrimage, never congregating in Jerusalem during the uh, Easter or Passover holidays. And um, the, um, the, the fixing of the date doesn't really begin until the municipality of the Ottoman uh, municipality of Jerusalem or the Jerusalem municipality during uh, the Ottoman period um, begins to administer the affairs of the shrine and the festival in Jerusalem and um, demands that pilgrims first meet, congregate in Jerusalem. And they fix the calendar to being uh, uh, to begin one week before Orthodox uh, Easter, uh, Good Friday. Um, <clears throat> actually, even many, especially in the Eastern Mediterranean regions, Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, Muslims tended to um, use the fixed uh, Julian Christian calendar to uh, fix their own or to date their own um, religious celebrations. So uh, instead of using the lunar calendar, which is more fluid, the, uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the fixed, I'm sorry, Julian calendar is uh, the, the Muslim populations would use the fixed Orthodox or uh, Julian calendar to determine certain major holidays. And so that they would begin before or after uh, Christmas or Easter or uh, a prominent saint's day in, in the Christian tradition. So it wasn't uncommon at all to use, uh, to, to have Islamic celebrations or major holidays or major uh, events <clears throat> associated with the, um, the Orthodox uh, Julian calendar. And it, it, it was just more out of convenience. Let me move to the structure of your book. I want to ask something about uh, the sources that you have used and also the methodological approach. And I'm also very curious about uh, the position of your book, essentially where your book is placed in the current historiography about Palestine. Well, regarding sources, uh, I was lucky. Um, there are, uh, there's extensive or uh, very wide-ranging discussion of the debate in the Islamic tradition of <clears throat> Moses' uh, final resting place, the location of it. Um, there's, of course, a discussion of the Hadith literature, the oral traditions of the Prophet uh, Muhammad, in which he sees M Moses praying at, the, uh, at his tomb, uh, what is referred to as um, Al-Kathib Al-Ahmar, uh, the red hill or the, the red dune when uh, the Prophet Muhammad conducts his uh, a, a nightly journey from um, <clears throat> Uh, from Mecca to Jerusalem. And uh, and so there's a great deal of speculation of where is this Kathib al-Ahmar, this uh, red dune, this sand hill. And, <clears throat> uh, and that leads to historians, religious scholars to debate could uh, of various locations. 
and then uh, I was lucky that once, um, uh, certainly once Baibas does endow uh, the shrine and patronize it, there are Mamluk historians, uh, uh, chroniclers who write about it um, uh, uh, into the 16th and, uh, century. In the Ottoman period, uh, chroniclers and travelers, and now increasingly European travelers are also writing about it. As they've conducted pilgrimages and they're moving through the desert, they will sometimes uh, visit it. As well, uh, in the Ottoman period, uh, the Ottomans would record, the administrators of the, the shrine would record um, um, financial uh, transactions related to the shrines, uh, purchasing food for the, uh, for the festival, um, uh, architectural renovations. And so these are recorded in the uh, Jerusalem uh, uh, court record documents. Periodically, once, twice, sometimes three times a year, sometimes once every two years or so uh, in the 16th, 17th, uh, around into the 18th uh, century. And so, and then uh, with a few surviving documents in the late Ottoman period, um, particularly after the municipality of Jerusalem takes greater control over it, um, and then in the in the late 19th century, before World War One, European travelers they've they are uh, some are very fascinated with it and write extensively about it, visit it, attend the uh, the annual um, festival, and into the colonial period, the British colonial documents, Arabic newspapers, English newspapers, private papers, um, and then luckily as well um, after 1948. Um, uh, Jordanian, uh, some Jordanian documents, and then increase and uh, some um, documents from the period after 1967, where it fits into the larger uh, uh, discussion is, <clears throat> um, I think, in this larger topic of understanding. Islamic religious practices and their social and cultural uh, historical importance. And <clears throat> there have been um, a number of uh, interesting uh, studies done on political slash religious celebrations uh, in Palestine, um, in Syria. Um, uh, James Galvin uh, studied the early uh, political festivals and celebrations of uh, Prince uh, Faisal in, uh, uh, right after World War I. Uh, Catherine Meyer uh, Jouen uh, has studied the Maulid of uh, Sayyid uh, Badawi in uh, Egypt. <clears throat> and uh, I think there's greater attention to these, uh, these events, not as just religious celebrations, but for their historical importance. And I, I think... Uh, Palace, uh, those interested in modern Palestinian history, as well as those interested in the larger Arab East or the Middle East, uh, will uh, all agree that uh, there's a dearth of sources and studies on social cultural history. And that has certainly improved in the last decade or last few decades, 
and uh, we could really uh, we we see the value of them, its importance as more as being uh, studied on that topic. And so, I, in many ways, I feel this study contributes um, <clears throat> to um, understanding Palestine's historical dynamics uh, through a cultural lens, through a social historical lens, and uh, uh, understanding how so many uh, so many topics intersect with one another: uh, religion, culture, politics, uh, uh, larger economic uh, uh, changes in in the region, and and so that's why it's in many ways I see it as a lens to study Palestine's um, modern history and contribute to what Bashar Damani referred to as understanding um, the uh, Palestine's silent majority that isn't always um, studied as widely. In the book, you obviously talk about the origins of the festival, but the uh, book itself is very much focused on uh, the period covering from 1850 to 1948. And I was wondering if you can give us a sense of the ceremonies with some details, uh, particularly in the late Ottoman era. Sure. Um, the, the ceremonies in the late Ottoman era have to be distinguished between those in Jerusalem and those at the shrine. Those at the shrine... Um, and we can um, refer to this as the pre-modern uh, rituals, uh, were focused uh, at the shrine where pilgrims went and sought what pilgrims usually seek in almost every religious tradition, proximity to the sacred. And seeking the proximity to the tomb of the prophet Moses to... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, to be able to uh, uh, be blessed with the barakah, the blessings of the tomb where they petitioned for their own health or the health of a child or conducted Sufi mystical uh, uh, forms of rituals or uh, practiced folk and um, uh, village traditions, songs and dances, as well as uh, played games, uh, mock sword fights or um, uh, displaying the Bedouin arts of horsemanship. And so before the modern era, the focus of, act, of ritual activity was at the shrine, both religious and non-religious, but um, mostly focused on gaining that proximity to the sacred uh, and the sacredness of the two. After the mid-19th century, after the Ottomans... <clears throat> Um, the Ottomans, in a way, reestablished their authority in Palestine's rural areas, um, reestablished authority over rural lords. Um, uh, they're able, the, the Ottomans are now able to tax more effectively, more widely, conscript more widely, conduct a, a census more effectively and efficiently. <clears throat> It's in the as well as in an era in the mid 19th century where there are there is increasing secular changes. Um, the Ottoman government is increasingly uh, adopting modern Western institutions of state. Uh, they are promoting 
secular laws and secular legal systems. <clears throat> and uh, it's in this era that the Jerusalem municipality uh, around 1862-63 is founded. And the Jerusalem municipality as a modern institution uh, and a secular institution uh, has this great authority and one of one of its uh, one authority it could exercise is its uh, its management of the the festival it's it's not really managing the shrine it's more focused now on managing a new festival in Jerusalem and this is what most if Palestinians and, and historians are familiar with it, uh, they're familiar with the large crowds arriving in uh, Jerusalem and uh, congregating at the Haram al-Sharif and the Al-Aqsa Mosque and <clears throat> uh, waving their banners, uh, entering with, uh, led by uh, Sufis who are playing drums and tambourines. And that uh, this is the iconic image people now associate with the festival. But for most of its history, that never existed. Most of its history, the, the rituals were mostly religious rituals located at the shrine. And uh, in a in an um, religious environment, which was, which did not at all uh, bifurcate between popular and religious, where uh, we have accounts of members of the ulama or the elite families of Jerusalem uh, participating in Sufi rituals. Uh, there are many accounts of Sufis uh, attending and saying and not really giving us any indication that there was a distinction between what we now refer to as popular and official Islam. <clears throat> and uh, it was a far more open religious sacred space. But in the 19th century, uh, in the mid-19th century, after that, when the Ottoman, uh, when the Jerusalem municipality manages the festival, they establish a festival and they have uh, really two different intentions. One is they create what uh, is referred to uh, as a civil religion. And where the festival is incorporated into the uh, the public rituals, the political uh, pageants of the Jerusalem municipality, but not um, for uh, solely solely for religious purposes, but to elevate their own uh, status in society. These rituals are predominantly led by non-religious uh, <clears throat> secular political leaders where the religious leaders only have a peripheral role. Uh, the new ritual now in Jerusalem, the modern festival, now demands people attend, pilgrims attend uh, from all over uh, the eastern parts of Palestine, southern Palestine, <clears throat> Jerusalem, and they enter uh, on a fixed date, the Friday before uh, the Friday and Saturday before Orthodox uh, Easter, and they will enter with uh, each town, uh, mostly Hebron, Nablus, and their surrounding villages, 
the, those around Jerusalem as well on a fixed date at a fixed time, <clears throat> organized as a maukeb, a procession, a contingent, and led by Sufis uh, and musicians playing drums and tambourine, tambourines. And <clears throat> they will, uh, they are led on rituals and on new rites that will highlight the members of the Jerusalem municipality, the elite notables of Jerusalem will all be involved as ritual actors. In many ways, the Jerusalem municipality has become the impersiarios of the festival, the, the, uh, the ritual organizers, the theatrical organizers, and which they play the most prominent role. And <clears throat> they are involved in cer new ceremonies of uh, prominently and publicly uh, retrieving the banner of the Prophet Moses, folding it, or a ceremony dedicated to unfolding it, uh, to presenting it to the Jerusalem governor uh, in processions led by the Jerusalem mayor or the Jerusalem um, uh, Sharia court uh, judge. Um, <clears throat> uh, and in all these rituals, these elite or Jerusalem municipal officials play a prominent role, as well as welcoming pilgrims just outside of Jerusalem at uh, Ras al-Amud in a, a tent that the municipality has uh, erected to welcome pilgrims and provide them refreshments and uh, as they em either embark or come return from the uh, shrine. Uh, <clears throat> and so they play this important new visible role that now... Uh, highlights um, uh, highlights the Ottoman state and these notables as one continuing to respect Islam in an era of modern secular changes, and two asserts the authority of Jerusalem as a political center over the rural communities, that those rural communities, rural lords have now been... Um, uh, demoted, uh, subordinated, and now uh, it is the uh, uh, Jerusalem is now the locus of authority. The Ottoman state is more powerful, and these pilgrims who are now have the role not as pilgrims, but really as uh, as the audience, where the main theater is the uh, uh, the actors of the. Uh, Ottoman, uh, of the Jerusalem municipality, of the notables, uh, of the elite of the city. And they are just there, the pilgrims are just there to watch these ceremonies. When they go to the shrine, they're pilgrims. When they're in Jerusalem, they are just uh, part of the audience watching these uh, ceremonies. And so... <clears throat> That's why it's a long answer. Sorry, Roberto, that they have to we have to distinguish between the rituals in Jerusalem and the rituals at the shrine and the rituals that were invented after the mid 19th century, which are really quite novel.
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Actually, this was an important answer, not uh, long really, uh, because I want to ask about what happened next. Obviously, the Ottomans in the last few decades uh, added the political element to the festival, which I believe it became paramount under the British. So in 1917, the British captured Jerusalem and Palestine, and in time, we know, settled as uh, colonial rulers. So I was wondering if you can tell us more about how the British understood the festival. And I'm curious about the changes that they made to the festival and also to the understanding of the festival. The British um, always paid close attention to the rituals of the people they colonized. And so they were they would participate in the existing uh, rituals and festivals of their colonized populations. They would uh, assert themselves in prominent roles, uh, or they would um, <clears throat> import festivals from um, uh, from um, uh, Great Britain, uh, such as celebrating the ascension of the king or queen, or um, other major uh, ceremonies that now the colonized population could participate in. So the British enter Palestine already familiar with the importance of rituals of their colonized populations. And especially they regarded um, the non-European population where religion was to them uh, the most important aspect of their uh, life and that these people could be understood through religion, and that religion was an apolitical site. So if they participated, they felt that they could manage this, these societies uh, more fully through religious ceremonies, through religious discourses, rather than through political discourses, such as treating the Palestinians uh, they see them um, through a sectarian lens that they are either Muslim or Christian. Uh, they are not uh, an Arab or Palestinian nation that they have to politically engage uh, for their political concerns. We just can uh, relate to them uh, on this religious level. So they already enter Palestine having this um, kind of epistemological approach, this cultural approach to rituals and the importance of religion that they assume all people have above all other concerns of their colonized uh, population. 
And so immediately the uh, they uh, grasp the importance of the festival, which is uh, Palestine's largest festival in many ways, Nebi Rubin in uh, near uh, Jaffa uh, attracted uh, more uh, pilgrims over the month-long celebration, but uh, Nebi Musa had larger crowds at one in, in the few days of the major ceremonies. <clears throat> and so they always regarded it as the largest festival in Palestine. <clears throat> and um, the first celebration was celebrated um, four months after the British enter Palestine. And they're already nervous because they realize this is the first public expression and most visible testimony to the transition from Ottoman Islamic to European Christian rule. And so the British are, um, uh, are uh, see it as an opportunity to uh, what they see as mollify the population, to show them that they continue to respect uh, Islamic tradition. They, they do this purposely by maintaining the rites and rituals um, of, the, uh, uh, of the Ottoman era, of the late Ottoman era. They don't want to uh, upend them. They don't want to um, replace them. The British want to just replace Ottoman officials and Ottoman participation with, with British participation. And so Ronald Storrs proudly boasts, I uh, committed... Uh, the Mutta Sharif's duties myself. I was the Mutta Sharif. I embodied that. Uh, and so Ottoman tradition is embodied through me. And <clears throat> when he presents the banners to, uh, or when the, the, the banners are presented to him at the Sharia court, uh, at the Sharia court in Jerusalem. And so the, the British always, um, uh, always boast uh, of how they continued tr the tradition of assigning a military band to lead the pilgrims. They inspected the banners um, and were present at all the major ceremonies. High-ranking officials uh, attended. And uh, to them, this displayed uh, that they would continue Ottoman traditions. They would continue to respect um, Islamic Traditions, and they would continue the Ottoman tradition that the Ottomans as rulers honored Islamic traditions in an era of secular changes, and they too, the British, would honor Islamic traditions in a in this era, in this modern uh, era. But uh, <clears throat> and so they, uh, it's interesting to constantly read how the British. Uh, stores and then uh, the first high commissioner Her Herbert Samuel are so eager to uh, convince their uh, higher-ranking authorities that they need permission to assign a band to attend a ceremony because then they keep trying to tell them if we don't do this, they believe people are going to the Muslim population is going to maybe riot or they'll be uh, they'll be so offended because what they're being what's being communicated to them from the 
uh, Arab elite, particularly the Mufti of Jerusalem before Al-Hajjamin, uh, this is Kamal al-Husseini, um, and other religious figures, is that if they, the British, don't a attend and participate, the Muslim population will be offended. Well, it's unlikely the Muslim population is going to be offended that the British aren't attending. It's the elite who will be nervous that they won't have the opportunity to display their political prominence by standing in proximity to Jerusalem's new rulers. So it's the elite who constantly played on this impression that the British had to uh, attend <clears throat> and that they um, uh, <clears throat> they had to attend uh, this uh, uh, festival because it's going to offend uh, the Muslims. And they attend throughout, up to 47, 40, uh, just before 48, they're even going now to the shrine. And they even there's like a, a really kind of interesting quote I, I found by the uh, one British officials who said, uh, the Muslim population was very uh, honored that we attended at the shrine. And they're still only seeing them up to uh, 1948 as just the Muslim population and not a political national uh, group. Now, before talking about uh, the Nebi Musa riots, uh, an event that occurred in 1920 and both myself and you have worked on, I want to ask about ideologies. And so the arrival of the British, but also the development of Zionist activities in Palestine, and obviously the introduction of nationalism as a defining ideology, changed the way the local Palestinians saw the festival. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about the discourses of modernity and nationalism and perhaps you can also talk about uh, some of the key individuals and how they change the perception and the understanding of the festival in this period of time. Sure. Um, I think uh, the topic of modernity is so uh, interesting because the um, um, municipal officials in the uh, mid-19th century uh, are really the ones who orchestrate this festival. It's not really orchestrated uh, by Ottoman officials in Istanbul. But throughout the um, Ottoman Empire, you see these local pageants, public celebrations uh, being organized by municipal, local officials. And they really tell us a lot about how they understood modernity. Their message was primarily that you could be both Muslim and modern that you can uh, have an Islamic uh, authority and have secular laws, secular education, Western political institutions, <clears throat> and that the, the two did not contradict one another. One Ottoman, uh, one uh, municipal uh, letter to the Jerusalem governor asks him to attend the festival wearing official clothes. And the official clothes were, was the new modern uniform of the that Ottoman officials and the military wore. And so uh, you could attend this religious celebration uh, not as a pilgrim, but as a, a, a modern individual wearing uh, mostly a European-style uniform. And <clears throat> that... Um, you could 
um, uh, espouse and practice this religious faith in a in a changing cultural environment. And this message only uh, uh, is amplified and expands after World War One, and where you see um, many instances of how um, <clears throat> of how easily um, this religious practice is uh, intermeshed and imbricated with a more secular and uh, modern uh, uh, activities. And that by this point, it's not seen as a contradiction because the Ottomans have already sta started and set the, the precedent uh, for it. In the, in the 20s and 30s, you see uh, advertisements um, that correspond with the uh, pilgrimage season, um, um, one soliciting uh, people to invest in, um, in certificates or bonds during the holy weeks of Easter, Passover, or uh, uh, Nebi Musa. Uh, you see one prominent, I have an image of it in the book, of a prominent uh, Palestinian flag, which was uh, known as the Arab flag, where it's in the middle of all the pilgrims marching out of Jerusalem, and in it, uh, on the flag, is the uh, name of a shop in Jerusalem near the Jaffa Gate. And it wasn't seen, it's, it's really an advertisement, it, it's, it wasn't seen as a contradiction that you would have this store advertising in the middle of this uh, festival. Or one really very interesting example of a, of a cigarette company, Karamandik Salty. Uh, they were the most uh, popular cigarette brand. And they uh, send their representatives to distribute cigarettes to the pilgrims. Uh, this is in the early 30s. And um, they distribute cigarettes to the pilgrims. And the, uh, the representative says, uh, we're friends of the pilgrims and friends of the mufti, al-Hajamin al-Husseini. And they they cheer the pilgrims cheer for the who the mufti who was there and for the uh, Karamandik Salty Cigarette Company, and by this time, the uh, it was already a practice that you had uh, uh, in this Islamic sacred space non-religious actors, non-religious. Uh, figures who participated in rituals, prominent rituals, folding and unfolding the sacred banners, which are greatly revered in the Islamic tradition, standing next to um, uh, Islamic uh, clerics and, and figures. And now you have uh, members of a commercial enterprise um, uh, visiting this shrine and using it uh, as a way to um, uh, promote their product. Um, that's how I, I think there's some interesting examples of, um, of how it becomes uh, espousing these modern ideals. Um, what I will say about nationalism is that <clears throat> um, my argument is, isn't that the Nebi Musa festival only represented Palestinian nationalism. In, in many ways, what I'm um, 
the larger argument I've made uh, is that this is an arena of competing discourses uh, of as pilgrims, uh, religious officials, political officials, secular officials, colonial officials attend this festival. They are competing with one another to promote their own distinctive discourses on a range of issues, uh, religious, political, national, um, understanding Islam's role in society, understanding colonialism. So nationalism was just one discourse. And nationalism was contested uh, at the festival. We can see how conflicted and contested it is as a discourse. And <clears throat> it is uh, there isn't one version of, of a Palestinian nationalism that's represented at the festival. There are multiple uh uh, ideologies, national loyalties um, that are that are articulated by various groups. Uh, Hajamin, the elite have their impression, the youth have their impression, um, and peasants have their impression of how they understand it. In many ways, before we look at, uh, and I can continue on this point if you want, uh, the festival in the 1920s becomes part of an expanding public sphere in Palestine, where uh, there are more opportunities for people to engage in a public discussion and debate about colonialism, nationalism, Zionism, uh, religious identity. And the festival just becomes one added uh, arena in that public sphere. And it's not just owned by Al-Hajimin Al-Husseini or the elite that manage the festival, but it's also um, the uh, the youth and non-elite groups uh, such as the peasants um, uh, and non-Zionist uh, Jews. They all become part uh, of this debate. Do you mind if I uh, continue on this? I want to ask about uh, these uh, non-elite groups later, and I would like to ask about uh, the Nebi Musa riots of 1920. Um, and, and I must uh, tell the listeners that I myself wrote about the Nebi Musa riots uh, that occurred uh, literally uh, 103 uh, years ago, almost by the day, um, in April 1920. And we have uh, slightly different views on the events that occurred, not in terms of what happened. Uh, so I'm going to ask you to summarize what happened in 1920, but I'm interested in your interpretation. And I just want to mention that uh, my idea when I wrote originally almost, uh, no, more than a decade ago about uh, the 1920 riots, I essentially made an argument uh, uh, around the fact that to me, they looked... Uh, almost organized, or at least there was a degree of organizations where both sides, uh, the Palestinian nationalists and the Zionists, particularly those that we now probably would define right-wing, um, you know, sort of uh, were ready to test each other, and they used violence as a form of language. Uh, and again, in your book, you basically make a different argument saying that there was no organization, or at least there was not a high degree of, of organization. So, again, if you can tell us a little bit more about the events, which I suppose is the area that we all agree, and also your interpretation of events of 1920. Sure. And I can say, Roberto, your uh, study on that was very helpful and uh, I respected a great deal. 
Um, <clears throat> the festival riots in uh, uh, April 1920, um, um, I see as more um, spontaneous it, and not organized. It was already a climate of tension. There were demonstrations in March uh, of that year uh, against the Belfort Declaration. Um, uh, there was still uncertainty of what would happen to Palestine as a country. It was still unresolved if it would be a mandate uh, or remain under British colonial rule or maybe potentially gain independence and join with Syria under Prince Faisal. <clears throat> and so there was growing tension and there was already, as you, I believe I remember correctly, you note an era of sectarianism and that now the uh, local Arab Jew was uh, not just an, uh, a member of your extended neighborhood, say in Jerusalem or uh, another city, uh, but that they were now part of the Zionist project. They were a political uh, opponent. And, and so in this atmosphere of rising tensions and of sectarianism, um, the, the congregation of so many people in the city of Jerusalem with, uh, I wouldn't say uh, rousing uh, uh, speeches filled with uh, uh, animosity, but heightened political speeches that heightened and amplified the political tensions led to any major, uh, any minor um, event leading to the uh, outbreak of violence. And we see this best in that incredible video, I'm sorry, video, film uh, that is captured on the roof of uh, one of the buildings overlooking the pilgrims as they are entering the city. This is the Hebron pilgrims, correct? and um, on the Sunday of the festival, and they are entering the city, and it's still a very typical scene of what has always been described. Um, one pilgrim is on the shoulders of his uh, fellow villager, and they're, he's doing a mock sword fight. Others are dancing, but then suddenly, immediately, the crowd uh, sallies behind them, and uh, then they rush back, and so there is less a, uh, an appearance that there is an orchestrated, maneuvered uh, attempt to mobilize people, uh, the pilgrims, into a mob to attack uh, Jewish people, the British, or Jewish targets, but it's, it, it uh, emerges spontaneously in this atmosphere of tension of where the most minor incident uh, ignites this spark. Generally, I would say what's most interesting to me about the festival, and we could disagree of the immediate causes, um, is that um, and <clears throat> is that the British discoursing of the festival after the riots, that they they either speak about it, the British colonial officials or the British press, or British visitors to Palestine speak about it as confirming that there are inherent racial uh, conflicts between 
quote unquote, the Jew and the quote unquote, the Arab. And the Jew is always politically, um, uh, 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 politically aggressive, um, um, is misinterpreting, misinterpreting the moderate uh, understanding of the Belfort Declaration, that it could serve all people properly. They're taking it at its most extreme to create uh, a Palestine as Jewish, as English, as English. And while the Arab is always inherently, um, uh, could be manipulated, gullible, and so uh, he believes the uh, all these extreme rumors, if these two racial uh, uh, figures can... Uh, be managed better, the British then can uh, can promote communal harmony, and that's their continued justification for remaining in the in the country. Let me move to uh, chapter six, and so pick up uh, from what you left before uh, talking about the Nibi Musa riots. Chapter six is a very interesting analysis of the participation of. Uh, non-elite groups, like you mentioned, anti-Zionist, communist Jews, Bedouins, peasants, and also others. And I was wondering if you can summarize for us your discussions, and perhaps you can add something about uh, what you called in the book the mystical devotion. Okay, I'm going to just say one more thing uh, that will tie to it, and please, if I get off topic, I know you'll uh, get me back on topic. Um, the uh, non-elite groups have their own agendas at the festival. And um, while the impression of the the elite groups or primarily the mufti is one of promoting nationalism um, <clears throat> at the festival, really his, uh, his attempt to expand the festival and invite pilgrims coming from Haifa and Jaffa and Ramle uh, is not to... Um, imbue them with a sense of the uh, of the nation or uh, promote necessarily a, na a Palestinian nationalism. And he's not mobilizing them as part of a mass mobilization against the British or against Zionism. He's doing it really to amplify his role as, as national leader, as preeminent Islamic figure, <clears throat> and not to uh, really instill a Palestinian nationalism, which he promotes, but that's not his main objective. And so his focus was always of uh, a political agenda of, uh, of maintaining his status as national leader, as chief Islamic figure in Palestine, of promoting a political um, resolution with the British. Uh, he was hostile to the Zionists, but moderate politically against the British. <clears throat> and his understanding of Palestine was restricted to the state of Palestine. The youth who are gaining greater ascendancy, greater political prominence in the late 1920s, early 1930s, primarily with groups like the Istiklal, are uh, now begin to espouse a different approach. And they, they mobilize the festival as part of uh, understanding it as part of Palestine's expanding public sphere. They attend the festival to promote their uh, uh, understanding of a Palestinian nationalism and British colonialism differently than the uh, than Al-Hajamin and the uh, elite. They 
um, espouse more of a militant uh, rhetoric calling for direct confrontation with the Zionists, with British colonialism. They demand an immediate end uh, to uh, British uh, colonialism. Their understanding of the uh, of the uh, Palestinian uh, of a nationalism isn't restricted to Palestine, but the larger Arab region. That's why they uh, herald and take pride in chants at the festival, uh, identifying them as Arabs, uh, uh, using the trope of the Arab language uh, as a uh, calling on Arabs to to awaken from their slumber. Um, and, <clears throat> and we see that they champion uh, uh, Islamic and Arab uh, cultural tropes uh, and historical figures in the names of their scout troops, uh, named in honor of Salah Adin or uh, Harun al-Rashid or Jihad, uh, the uh, holy war struggle, or um, <clears throat> other Islamic uh, 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 religious language to stress their Arab Islamic identity, to stress confrontation with the uh, uh, that they espouse, and to stress an understanding of identity beyond uh, uh, Palestine. And <clears throat> so uh, that is, and they are delivering speeches that are unauthorized at the festival and often getting... Um, uh, arrested for it. And so they're one non-elite group. Uh, others include groups like the non-Zionist uh, communist Jews, <clears throat> who uh, in 1928-29 uh, adopt officially an, uh, an, an anti-Zionist uh, position, and they see the Nebi Musa festival as a way to recruit uh, peasants and urban workers into the communist movement, and they will denounce at the festival both the British and the uh, wealthy Arab elite, as well as actually Zionism, as they promote um, <clears throat> a classless uh, identity or a class-based identity of workers and peasants against British colonialism, Zionism, and the wealthy uh, uh, landed elite. Uh, in Palestine. They too are often arrested um, and the Arab elite are more than happy when Arab uh, communists are arrested, even though they're denouncing the British uh, and Zionism. And so <clears throat> did you did you want to uh, for me to speak about um, women and Sufis? If you could add uh, something about women and Sufis, um, since I have one last question later, but uh, I, I think women in particular are very much present throughout uh, several parts of your book. And I was wondering if you can add a little bit more about uh, the role of women. Sure. What I found, you know, I went into this topic um, kind of uh, adopting the approach that others have taken about women attending, especially Muslim women attending uh, Islamic rituals and women uh, attending um, rituals in general, where as uh, Saba Mahmoud refers to it as um, that there is this sense of a liberatory discourse that women only seek 
to attend these religious ceremonies, especially in the uh, uh, Islamic context, to escape patriarchy, and that they are going there uh, uh, to seek this liberation from the patriarchal environment that constricts them in the home and uh, at home. <clears throat> and there are a number of writers uh, who uh, depicted the festival in this way and women's participation uh, in particular. What I found interesting, looking more closely at it, um, reading Rima Hamami, who writes about how um, women would attend um, um, their visitation of shrines either uh, on their own or in groups of women in, um, in ceremonies seeking uh, address of everyday issues uh, such as the health of their children, the, um, uh, the uh, praying and petitioning the divine that they would um, gain fertility if they had problems with uh, gain, uh, being pregnant. And so they attended uh, religious ceremonies, <clears throat> uh, festivals, and these mausums and mulets, not to seek liberation from a patriarchy, but to fulfill a religious um, uh, 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 religious calling, a, 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 a spiritual demand that met their everyday challenges. And they attended not, um, they attended really uh, in ways that conformed to how they understood gender relations and religious practices in their home communities. So they attended not, they it was really more women who generally attended these festivals than men. And it was women <clears throat> who attended in groups, but men and young men and, and, and the, uh, the boys of the family attended as well, which conformed to how they understood gender relations back in their home community, where, uh, especially in Palestinian villages, the kin um, and extended family members uh, live in a village, and so the village community uh, can include extended family members. And so uh, participating with them, uh, uh, sleeping at the shrine for two or three nights wasn't, didn't, wasn't uh, controversial because this was extended family anyway. And they worshipped at the shrine of the tomb of the prophet Moses in the same way they worshipped at the um, uh, at a local shrine. And as uh, Tafik Kanan would say, uh, the number of shrines in Palestine are innumerable. They're ubiquitous, where every village has one or two shrines and <clears throat> of a local saint or a local figure that they would worship. And so uh, they they practice the same type of religious rituals where they would light a votive candle or say a prayer or conduct Sufi mystical forms of worship uh, in the same way they did at the village. And so it wasn't really escaping a patriarchy. It was uh, really conforming to how they understood their own religious practices back at home. The number of... Uh, uh shrines in Palestine equals the number of uh, holy wells in Ireland. That's something I learned in my time over there. 
Let me ask the last question about uh, what happened to the festival, particularly after 1936, when the Arab revolt started. How did the festival change uh, in terms of its understanding and function? And also, if you can tell us something about uh, the transformations that took place after 1938 to the present. After 1936, the Arab revolt, that's when you begin to see greater restrictions placed on uh, the festival. The British, um, <clears throat> the uh, by 1939, the British have quelled and suppressed the, the uh, revolt, and the Arab political elite are in no position to challenge the British. And so the British... Uh, what's interesting is that they don't want to put an end to the festival. They still want the public expression uh, and association, uh, an association with its public, uh, pa- this public pageant uh, to remain. They just want to um, truncate it and modify it to um, subdue its political expressions, but still maintain its religious significance. So that's when they end the practice of pilgrims congregating in Jerusalem at the Haram al-Sharif, uh, having these large crowds attend there. They, attend, they um, end the practice of the procession of banners. These would take hours to complete as pilgrims came from, uh, from the outskirts of Jerusalem, Solomon's Pools, or even Sheikh Jarrah, into the Al-Aqsa Mosque, it would take for the pilgrims from Nablus or Hebron uh, some hours to uh, complete. Now, with that ended, and there's only one very truncated ceremony of the uh, religious officials presenting the sacred banners of Nebi Musa, Al-Aqsa, um, <clears throat> uh, Nebi Daoud, the Prophet David, um, to the Jerusalem governor, uh, that would take uh, uh, an, you know, easily uh, half an hour or an hour to complete. Now just took five or ten minutes. And so they ended this, uh, this tradition that dated back to the mid-19th century and largely um, the Arab elite and the public weren't in a position to challenge it. And... Um, <clears throat> Uh, it uh, that tradition remained after the Jordanians, um, the Jordanians um, uh, took over the uh, uh, festival in, in Jerusalem after 1948 and 49. But they are wary of the festival. They see it as an expression of Palestinian nationalism, and so by 1953 they have completely canceled the festival, especially when. Um, uh, uh, King Hussein, uh, Hussein ascends the throne and they don't want such a large public expression. And the waqf officials, the, the managers of the, the shrine, say, why is it that Christian festivals are openly practiced in Jerusalem and we can't practice Nebi Musa that dates back centuries? And <clears throat> the Jordanian officials constantly stall them, but then officially cancel the festival in 1953. In 1967, 
that the Israelis don't allow the Palestinians to revive it until the uh, Oslo Accords that gives uh, the shrine a special status for the PA to hold ceremonies. So it gives this kind of mock sense of um, um, uh, of, of sovereignty for Palestinians where they could raise the Palestinian flag and champion uh, Yasser Arafat and Palestinian nationalism. Uh, but really, it's limited to just that space. Uh, and then in the early 2000s, the Turkish government uh, begins to sponsor renovations at the shrine and highlight the link between the festival and the Ottoman era and Turkey's support for Islamic institutions. And now it's it's Turkish, the Turkish ambassador, who's the most honored guest at the festival. It seems to me, and this is like a final comment, that in a sense... Um, the celebration of the Greek Orthodox Easter uh, amongst Palestinians, certainly the Christian ones, kind of uh, picked up a little bit uh, the sense and the function of the festival. But I was wondering if given a change, uh, a radical change in the circumstances of Palestine, you think the festival, the Nebi Musa festival, could be re-envisioned, reimagined and re-established in the future? I think if they exercise greater sovereignty, I think there would be many people who would want to revive the tradition of people congregating at uh, the Haram al-Sharif uh, from all over Palestine, breaking down those borders between pre-67, post-67 occupation um, <clears throat> as a unifying image um, and uh, as, and, and, uh, Reasserting it as well as a religious celebration, though not as just a political celebration. I think that tension will always exist. When I attended in 2014, I saw that uh, clearly, where um, you know Sufis, I'll just say very quickly, had a prominent role at the festival. They led the processions into Jerusalem, led every Malkib out of the city. They represented to the modern uh, official organizers of the festival as the uh, uh, as the representatives of popular Islam. And it's in the 19th century where we see this bifurcation between popular Islam and popular rituals at the festival versus official Islam and official rituals at the uh, at the festival. Previously, before the mid 19th century, there was no distinction. After the mid 19th century, they're bifurcated and they're quite separate. So the Sufis always represented uh, popular Islam. Uh, at, the, uh, at the ceremonies, uh, at, at the shrine, they led uh, uh, young boys in processions to, uh, to, to, to be circumcised. Uh, uh, this was a major family uh, event and celebration. Uh, they led the largest uh, religious ceremonies at the shrine with large circles of uh, of dancers uh, repeating a vikir, um, uh, uh, ritual invocations of God. <clears throat> they played drums and tambourines. They welcomed every um, pilgrim uh, that came into the uh, shrine. So they always played a prominent role. 
But there's always this tension between what uh, are the religious ceremonies and between those who want an official political event at the at the shrine or at the festival. And so when I attended in 2014, um, the Sufis um, <clears throat> uh, had their large celebrations in the, the mosque where they uh, had a large circle playing drums, playing uh, tambourines, um, and, um, and ritually uh, dancing to the invocations of uh, Allah, of God. And you could tell other Muslims who were visiting were unfamiliar with this. And uh, they were taking, uh, uh, recording it on their phones. But as well at the shrine, the, um, the, the, the PA officials were making the official speeches, you know, the reassert the capital of, of Palestine in Jerusalem, calling for a two-state solution um, and uh, uh, upholding it as a, uh, as a Palestinian festival. Even uh, Bishop Atallah Hanna, the, the main Palestinian bishop, was uh, seated at the front row of the festival of the shrine. Uh, for the all the uh, the dignitaries, but on the side at the same time of these political speeches, were the Sufis who are dancing, playing their tambourines, their drums. They couldn't care less about the political speeches. That tension always exists. This was uh, Awad Alabi, the author of Palestinian Rituals of Identity, the Prophet Moses Festival in Jerusalem, 1850 to 1948 published by the University of Texas Press in 2022. Awad, thank you so much. Roberto, it was such a pleasure to speak to you and thank you for taking the time to interview me. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.